Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance? Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with GoldStar.com. GoldStar is in 26 cities around the country, with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to GoldStar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind. Expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. In 2001, he signed on to direct a play at the Kennedy Center. Little did he know the impact that that decision would have on my life. Find out how when you listen to my episode with director extraordinaire, Jason Moore. My guest today is the theater, film, and television director, Jason Moore. Jason is currently represented this season on Broadway with The Share Show and off-Broadway with Superhero at Second Stage. Some of his other Broadway directing credits include Fully Committed, Shrek the Musical, Steel Magnolias, Avenue Q, and Le Miserable, for which he was the resident director. He has been nominated for the Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Tony Award, and countless other awards. He directed the films Pitch Perfect, Sisters, and for TV, Brothers and Sisters, Dawson Creek, Everwood, and One Tree Hill. 
I'm so thrilled to welcome one of my oldest and dearest friends to the podcast, Jason Moore. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. All right. So I'm not sure whether to bury the lead or just come out with the lead right now. Maybe we'll just start with this little known fact, and then we'll move on to the most extraordinary career of of a a director that's possible to have. Um, In 2001, I auditioned for a play. Yes. And who was the director for that play at me, the time? Me. You. And it was called Surviving Grace. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be happening at the Kennedy Center. That's right. An illustrious theater yes. in America. Yes. <laughs> James Caleri was the casting director. That's right. Another old friend. Another old friend. And truly like a play that I read and I was like, I, I guess so. Um, but do I want to leave town? Oh, I'll just go in and see what happens. And then there you were sitting behind the desk. And I had one of the most fun audition experiences of my life. That makes me happy to hear. Okay. And you were, try to make them fun. You do. And I got the part. Mm-hmm, you did. And I went to D.C. And there was an actor in the play named Dominic Famusa who was cast as my romantic lead. Yes. But... It was a different director. (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute. On day one. On day one. Um, Which maybe I knew at the time, or maybe I got there and I was like, you're Jack Hofsis. Also remarkable. Yes, fantastic director. So here's what I want to say. I took a moment and wondered if I still wanted to do the project because Mm -hmm. the original understanding of the players had changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Did the read through. Mm -hmm. And had that thing that happens that you only see in movies that you direct, <laughs> which is, I think I'm in love with yep. my co-star. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I'm now married to that man. Yes, you are. And I have two children. Oh, God. It's incredible. And um, It's one of the happiest stories. One of the happiest casting stories I know. Yes. There was a moment where we were like, can we name our daughter Jason Moore Famusa? Is that weird? <laughs> um and no, it wasn't. So, so we named her Jason Morphamusa. Um you can Google it, it's so true. Right, just a nickname. A yeah. nickname's fine. So I've been wanting to um figure out a proper way to thank you and I thought about like having an airplane and do skywriting, um, creating yeah, the Jason Moore Award. <laughs> yeah. But now I get to say in front of like I have a bunch of listeners at this point that my entire adult life, um, and all the happiness and complications of it as well, by the way, <laughs> exactly. do I thank yeah, you? It all comes together. It <laughs> do all I comes kill in you? one big lovely ball. Yeah. Oh, so, well, that makes me so happy. I mean, it's something I rejoice every time I see you guys, listen to your podcast, see him on TV, see anything that you guys are doing or hear about your family. It just, it's it's fantastic. It's a great story. And it, it shows also, you guys are both so incredible talents, but people. And I knew that that day, which is why I wanted you guys which to Which is play why opposite. you quit. <laughs> <laughs> no, play opposite. I just can't. I can't handle all the sparks and electricity. It's too much. It's too much. I know. And you're like, well, I love Dominic, too. <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't want to complicate things. I had to leave. <laughs> I understand. It's the most generous act of love I could. It I really could was. It really was. It's Shakespearean <laughs> yeah. in terms of the beauty of that. So thank you for that. Oh, that Well, of course. I, it, I had very little to do with it, but I'm so happy for you and for us. Are there other Cupid arrows that you uh, have actually designed? on Pitch Perfect yes. as an actor named Skylar Aston who started off in uh, Spring Awakening and uh, Anna Camp who played they ended up falling in love and getting married yep yeah, so That's it amazing. happens, you know, because you cast, especially, I think projects where people bring joy and bring their full selves and are vulnerable and open, and that's why we got into this business mm-hmm. is to discover what it means to be human and be connected to other people. So, if you can get a family and some great vacations out of it, I exactly. think go for it. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> family, great vacations, mm-hmm. ma- equal marriage. Yes. 
Let's go back because when you talk about like this love and and sort of of the world of the performing arts and in all shapes and forms and and wanting to connect, you're from Arkansas. I am originally. Fayetteville, Arkansas. You is that anywhere anywhere near Broken Arrow where Kristen Chenoweth is from? No, actually, well, when we would hear like the school, you know, snow closings, Broken Arrow was one of the ones that we would listen to on the radio. On the so near- it's not it's not near, but it's not far. You are familiar. Yes, very. Um, how did the how did art and performing and musicals come into your life? Well, the University of Arkansas, which is at Fayetteville, had a children's theater program. So when I was like five and six, I would audition and go do the little shows. And then when I was six, I got cast as Tiny, the littlest lost boy in Peter Pan. And I was wandering around in a little loincloth, and I thought, I really like this. <laughs> Were your parents... Uh, people who listened to cast recordings? Like, was it in your household? Not at all. I mean, my grandmother played the piano, so I took piano lessons early on. But I really, I think I discovered musicals, like, through, like, the Muppet movie. Because mm-hmm. you know? at that time, HBO had just come on, and that was right. all. They were running it all the time. And that I really fell in love with Grease and the Muppet movie. So really through movies. And then the, the theater program at university had people, you know, come in and perform. But I really didn't see a Broadway show until I was 19. Uh Uh-huh. Until you directed one. (laughs) No, no, well, a couple (laughs) years later. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, 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 but I grew up listening to cast recordings. That was really it. I was the kid with, you know, all the posters on my wall. Like what? Take us through it. If if we were set, if I were the set designer of Jason Moore's room. Well, of course, it was like the the Karen McIntosh specials, Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Phantom of the Opera, ones that you could also order by mail, right? Right. Because I'm in Arkansas, I didn't have anywhere to go to buy them. City of Angels, Jerome Robbins Broadway. I discovered all of those shows through the cast albums and looking also through the albums and seeing the pictures. That was the only resource, right, we had. So it was fun to imagine what they looked like, you know, so that was kind of how I started dreaming Mm -hmm. about what the shows look like when you hear the music for the first time. And was there someone, was it through the community theater or the children's theater where you were hearing about cast albums would you go to the local record store or to the library like where were you getting mentorship for this well, fascination did, the the guy who played nana the dog mm-hmm. <laughs> uh was uh ended up being my sort of drama teacher in at my junior high and in high school and um, he was a mentor mm-hmm. and he showed me the love of theater and building basic flats and sets and um, sort of how to look at a script and read Shakespeare, and he had a big influence. So we, he brought me to, to cast albums. In fact, when I went to New York for the first time, he took me to see O Calcutta, which is so wow. Did bizarre. your parents know? <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think they knew what it was. Yeah. I'm not sure we knew what it was I've, exactly. But what it, was it? It was just it was a review that had some sexuality in it, right? Sure. With like all these different writers, was it like? John Lennon and a bunch of people wrote songs for that. So I saw we saw Into the Woods, O Calcutta, and the revival of Ain't Misbehaving. It's good. Wow, it's good theater that's a good ticket. And it brought a wide range. Yes, of shows. And was this like the world of getting very dressed up to go see a show? Were yes. you sort of doing that? Yeah, because it was my first time. So I think I, I think I did wear you know like a a jacket, maybe not a tie. I wasn't really a tie. You might have worn that on the airplane. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Like that was what Classy, we had this whole classing it up. Totally. No sweatpants. No. Although people will do that now, sweatpants now. Yes, but you would not. What do you wear when you fly now? <laughs> sweatpants. <laughs> but like a hey, nice velour nice tracksuit. Exactly. Got to be comfortable. I got it spread out. <laughs> so it's kind of fascinating, and must have been pretty heady to have had Les Mis and and that sort of 
catalog of shows as part of your childhood wallpaper mm-hmm. and soundtrack mm-hmm. to then become resident director for the ongoing show years later. It That was one of the kind of early full circle moments that you you know we get to have sometimes in life you're whether like it's what career or not yeah, yeah. things come around but i did i went i had my first job was i was the associate director of ragtime the original um tour of ragtime and that company went belly up and i lost my job and i was on unemployment living on a couch for the first time in new york but because i had done that very specific kind of directing i wrote cameron mcintosh a letter mm-hmm. and i said you know i've been working on a musical based on a book. It's a big epic show. And I got to meet him, and that was one of the first things I said. He said, well, what do you know about Les Mis? And I said, not enough, right. which was the, the best answer when yeah. Trevor Nunn was also in the room. Um, Honesty that, is the best policy, always, Jason. Always, always. And, you know, the show had been running for, for 11 years. And then I told him the story about having the poster. So I was like, I'm also... I know a lot about it, and I don't know enough to have this yeah. job yet. So he appreciated You're it. You're like, I don't... I, it's a book? There's source material? Yeah. I had no idea. Also, like, I, that's when I also learned, like, part of directing is admitting what you don't know and mm. asking for the best person to help you fill that gap. Right. Yeah. So you went, did you go to college for I theater? I was, well, I went to Northwestern in Chicago and there was no directing program. So I was in the film program and then I transferred to theater and then I was in performance studies which is the adaptation of literature for the theater which is uh, Frank Galati who directed Ragtime was one of my yeah. professors that's how I got that job and and then I was in the musical theater program and in the writing program and I didn't finish anything and I realized now really what I was doing was just creating a directing program where there wasn't one did you think you were going to pursue acting originally I was in the acting program and all my friends were actors so I thought that I was supposed to do that and then I realized how bad I was. <laughs> How did did somebody tell you? <laughs> you know what? I would always go up on my lines because I was concerned about what the other person was doing. So I think I was in a... You were directing. Yeah, I was directing, but on stage while I was supposed to be performing. Not, not cute. I think Wait. I was in a production of Comedy of Errors, and I was actually playing one of the twins against my closeted boyfriend at the time. Right. And I remember going But your boyfriend on... was closeted? We both were. You both... <laughs> I mean, I think we were in a glass closet everyone could see in. <laughs> we couldn't see out. That is a I thing. Mean... That is the name of your memoir, In the, <laughs> the Glass, glass Closet. closet. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a good Fragile. title. Yeah. I'm going to trademark that immediately. <laughs> Great. Uh, so I think I remember going up on my lines and thinking, oh, this isn't for me. Both the anxiety of it and the I'm wondering what he's doing. Maybe right. I was wondering because he was my boyfriend. I don't know. Who's who's he doing? <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. Other jealousies when you play opposite your your lover. Well, it's so funny. The most fun is when you play opposite someone who you don't know yet mm-hmm. is that for you. Mm-hmm. Like it's that's the best part of life, mm-hmm. right? The crush. The crush. Yeah. If you can. The keep, discovery. Yeah. Like, how do you keep? It's true for everything, whether it's. Um, a part that you have to do more than once, which is mm-hmm. theater, mm-hmm. Um, or love. How do you keep making it about discovery, especially on a two-show day? Exactly. <laughs> and all you're thinking is, did I already say that? Yeah. No, that was this afternoon. Did I already right, love but him? I could maybe say it in a, in, a, in a different way. Unless I already said it, and now I've taken a lot of seconds to try to remember <laughs> if I've said it. So I'm just going to say it. Right. And if someone looks at me normal, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I think that knowing early on 
And you were very lucky that your body and circumstances were really letting you know, like, this is not for us. Yeah, this isn't the place. But also, I loved being in the theater. I also knew early on, I think it, maybe it's because I discovered musicals through movies. I always knew I wanted to do both, which mm-hmm. is why I went in as a film major, because I had some preconception that somehow the film industry was easier or more lucrative than than the theater, which is not true. The lucrative part is true. Sometimes. Sometimes it is. The theater can be lucrative, too. Yes, yes. It all depends on your path. But So I always knew that I wanted to do both. So discovering that I wasn't an actor was sort of the way to go, okay, I, I love I love the organization part. And I'm yeah. not really good at any one thing, but I know a lot about a little bit about everything else. So that's what directing is. So I just want to talk for a second about when you say, I'm in college, I'm closeted, my boyfriend's playing opposite me, I'm forgetting my lines. <laughs> Uh, the glass closet, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were growing up in Fayetteville, mm-hmm. that's a very small town mm-hmm. in Arkansas, mm-hmm. and I don't know how progressive your family life mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're still closeted in college, it probably meant you didn't really feel like it was going to work for you in high school. That is right. I was I was closeted in college until uh, until I finally came out. But in, in Arkansas, I grew up in a very progressive family. My father was uh, Bill Clinton's chief of staff when he was governor of Arkansas. So I grew up in like a deep democratic, you know, do we use the L word? Liberal, mm. <laughs> you know. You can on this on podcast. This, okay, yes. <laughs> Next door, I don't know what's going on. It has on. a connotation. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in, and I used to tour the state with dad and with uh, with Bill and Hillary. And so I, I was sort of grew up in a progressive um, social sense, but I also didn't know very many gay people. Although, you know, thinking about another theater experience, the next trip after the Ain't Misbehaving trip, I saw the original production of Angels in America, and ran into one of my neighbors from Fayetteville and realized in that instant that he was gay, something that I'd, somebody that I'd known for 15 years. So I had that was another big theater turning point for me. Was that person the same Soviet. age as you or mm-hmm. older than you? No, he was actually one of my mother's good friends. So um, wow. he actually sort of helped me understand that where I came from was, you know, a loving good place for some people uh but i had to get away from it to really know how to come and was it because he was at a production of angels and an adult that made you realize he was gay i saw him with his who turned out to be he married him years later and i I didn't know that who came to be his husband but i just sort of saw all the gay men in the audience and i saw them together and it just clicked and Mm -hmm. because i kind of knew that i'd always had a connection and that's probably why i needed a connection to him in fayetteville because there was something he knew probably about me that I was still discovering about Right. Myself. Well, it's funny. I just uh, did a live show with Mary Steenburgen oh, and yeah, Ted Danson, and we spent a lot of time talking about her getting to know the Clintons mm-hmm. um, and also being from Arkansas mm-hmm. and sort of what that means to a person. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it must have been very exciting when the Bill Clinton and then Hillary were running for election to it's just rare that you have a personal connection whatever your very, feelings are in the end politically yeah, yeah. It, um, was, it was very unusual I mean I I grew up around them and learned a lot and from my really from my father sort of the values of helping people and looking at your community and figuring out you know what what your values are politically um, and uh, when I was I was in 
junior high, I went to the inauguration, and so. Uh, but I was also that same weekend. I was in a production of Up the Down Staircase. What so. do I do? <laughs> do I go to the inaugural ball? I was so at I the both. Arkansas inaugural ball. Were you? I had done because Mary and I were just talking about that. I'm sure that's the ball that you were at. Yes, I was there. And uh, I don't remember how it happened that that was the one I got invited to. But at the time, I was doing my first Broadway show and had done a huge event for Broadway for Clinton, basically. Uh, It was called Jake's Women. Yes, okay. And and because of that, I ended up getting, from the DNC, Mm -hmm. I was invited to come uh, to the ball. and So we had a near miss there. Yes, totally. And it was really... We had to come back to Washington to the Kennedy Center. But you weren't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> Just want to circle back. Yeah, I thought we were having a reunion of sorts, but alas, you were not there. Um, so let's talk about when you, I just wanted to hone in again, the idea of like writing a letter. Mm-hmm. There are people, um, you know, Dominic, when he first got to New York, he wrote a letter to Ang Lee. Mm-hmm. He was just such a fan of his. He had yep. just gotten out of school. Uh, and he wrote a letter to Ang Lee how he got the, you know, found his production office. And within like a week, Ang Lee had called him, taken him to lunch, not cast him, but he did take yeah. it. He did buy lunch. And it's kind of an amazing thing. Do people reach out to you now? You know, it's actually the piece of advice that I give most people when they ask what's something concrete that I can do if I don't have a connection. Um, when I first, you will appreciate this, when I first got to New York and landed here on unemployment, I also wrote to Michael Mayer. And um, from a letter, got an interview with him uh, to be his assistant on a production of Lion in Winter, which I ended up not being able to do. <clears throat> and also, but I, but I think when you write a letter passionately, mm-hmm. like I'm sure Ang felt when I yeah. wrote to him, you can tell. And to answer your question, yes, I do get letters, and you can tell the ones that are sort of form letters. But you know, these days, whether it's an email, a letter, people can take the time to really express themselves. So. I think a couple of assistants I've found that way. So I encourage it a lot. Yeah. You can tell. You know, we're in the theater because we're passionate, right? Right. And when someone puts that on paper, you can tell if it's And you appreciate it. Yeah. So how did you go from the bread line, like the character? Yes. Yes. You were Jean Valjean, and then you became uh, a resident director for Les Mis. Yes. So, well, I wrote the letter. I went to that meeting with uh, Cameron and Trevor and ended up getting the job. Uh, There was that period of time at the 10th anniversary of Les Mis when they let a lot of people go from that company. Right. And they were sort of switching over and trying to figure out how you run a show for a long time. So that's actually how I got that job was to kind of come in and work with the new actors and learn the show and try and look at some fresh way to look at it. Like you said, like how do you do this on a two-show day and find something fresh in it all the time? And that ended up being my really sort of my day job, a wonderful, wonderful day job while I was working on new plays and musicals for, you know, so you were developing things with people. How are you kind of creating a community here? So during that time, I, well, I was learning uh, learning a lot about equity rules mm-hmm. and how Broadway works. And then I, there was a small group of uh, writers from Northwestern. And I just, you know, I sort of, that was the other big piece of advice that I got that I also give, which is direct directing is people giving you resources. So do it whenever you can. Right. You know, if you get a script and you can do a reading, do it. The very first reading, I was thinking about this on the way over here, that I also did when I got here around that time was uh, a really wonderful play that Marion Seldes starred in. And I was like 25. Yeah. And she got out of her car that we had gotten her to come to the reading, which seemed so glamorous to me. And she bowed to me. And I thought, of course, that speaks everything mm-hmm. about 
who she was and all the lessons that she taught us. But it was just like, I'm not, it was just like do anything that you can get your hands on to be around actors. And so that's what I tried to do. When you graduated from Northwestern, which there are so many extraordinary artists that I've worked with and known over mm-hmm. the years. I think Michael Greif went to Northwestern, who was one of my first directors, yes. a non-equity Berkshire Theater Festival. Yes. <laughs> and then he got something called Rent. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it worked out for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> crazy, among other things mm-hmm. along the way. But was your first community here in New York, people you had known in school? Did you like roommate with each other? Like literally, you're from Arkansas. Do you have family here? Like how do you begin? No. There was... Well, when I graduated Northwestern, I first went to L.A. for, like I said, for a while, and I really didn't know anyone there. Which is oh, part, I didn't know part that. Of how, so that's I yeah. went to L.A. Um, and I worked <clears throat> at CAA for a while, and I was trying to learn like the film business because mm-hmm. that was my original instinct to start there. But I didn't know anyone. I was not happy. And the way I got that ragtime job is the first American company of ragtime started in Los Angeles, which okay. is so unusual. So that job moved me to New York, and that's how we okay. caught up to where we are. Okay. Um, to today, and now we're here. <laughs> to today. <clears throat> Zip. Uh, sorry, repeat the question. Yeah, no. So I was wondering when you got here, like I always think, I grew up in New Jersey. I just had to come across yeah. the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. It was yeah. not like, oh my God, where am I? And what's a subway? And how did you begin here? There were a few people that I knew, a few playwrights, really. And the and the, the Lema's job really did afford me to meet a lot of people. I met sure. casting directors. I met a lot of actors. And I actually met a playwright named Jeff Whitty. Um, uh, and I'm sorry, Academy Award nominated Jeff Whitty? I know, it's so incredible. Yeah, so sorry, sorry. Say that again. Yes, Academy Award nominee, Tony winner, Jeff Whitty. Um, and when I met Jeff, I met a bunch of other writers and started doing readings of plays, which is what you what you do. And that's how you really meet people and, and learn about working on new material. And I learned very quickly that new material was what I was more interested in and better at it. And had a handle on. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to a show that has had such staying power mm-hmm. and made so many people happy across the globe called Avenue Q. Yeah. Uh, wh- how? So you knew Jeff Whitty. Yeah, it was one of those critical mass stories. I, I'd done a reading that Jeff Whitty wrote. I met um, Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks, who wrote the music at a BMI festival, and I had interviewed to be Baz Luhrmann's assistant on a production of La Boheme that Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller had produced. So, and I'd also been directing television while I was doing Les Mis. So I was doing Dawson's Creek and that- and But the, that's, okay, <clears throat> but that's like, when I hear about people trying to break into television, it's like trying to get a waitering job if you've never waited tables. So mm-hmm. you can trail someone mm-hmm. in the restaurant until they think you're ready. How did you- Look, by the way, those were huge shows. Mm-hmm. Each One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill. Well, that's, I mean, actually trailing someone in a, in a restaurant, that's exactly what I did. Brian Greenberg, I... by the way, was one of my very first oh, guests on this amazing. show. Fantastic. He still is like one of the most listened to episodes. Yeah. Oh, so, fantastic. by the way, One Tree Hill. Yeah, yeah, I love him. All right. So, how did you, I'm sorry we're all over the place, but I how did that. you get to direct? I mean, brothers and sisters were, you know, Robbie Bates and theater mm-hmm. people sort of did that That's one. Right. So maybe I get that one. But how did you break well, in? Again, it comes back to uh, Northwestern. One of my best friends at school, we also called that the glass closet, was the fraternity I was in. <laughs> and he was my pledge son, air quotes I'm doing right okay. now. Um, I hate when it's audio sometimes. I know. That's why I had to give right. context. But his name is Greg Berlanti. And he is obviously is a TV 
movie mogul now but he was one of the head writers on dawson's creek at the time so i knew that i wanted to be behind a camera i had never done it and i did exactly that i went i didn't trail at a restaurant i trailed on uh the set of dawson's creek the I, restaurant that yeah. is dawson's creek yeah, the restaurant that's dawson's creek so i would i would while i was doing les mis i would take my vacation weeks and go and sort of sit on set and greg was like if you just come and be here you know, I paid for myself to be there, but I kind of had a sense, like, if I can learn this, one, that's a great real mm-hmm. advantage. And then a director, as it happens, <laughs> that director didn't show up, and I got an episode. I sort of fell mm, into Funny it. he didn't show up. See? Mysterious. <laughs> Mysterious, like, machinations of we'll things. We'll fingerprint you yeah. in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Keep, yeah, put me on a low jack. <laughs> um, so I directed an episode of that and then started doing more and more Greg's shows. That's the thread, if you look at that. Having ever a loyal Greg. friend. Yeah. Or just... No, Greg Berlanti. No, Greg Berlanti. And, and you're he good. is a loyal friend. He, uh, the people who work with him repeatedly, and he's loving and creates a family. He's a teacher. He's now a dad. So he has that sort of, you know, that sort of giving mentality. He was very generous to me early on. So I started doing those shows for the, um, it was the WB at the time. Was it the CW now? Mm-hmm. WBCW. Um, so I was going, that was also something I was trying to do, and then working on new plays and musicals. So so that was the long way around, which is because I had directed television and there was a strong television influence on Avenue Q. Avenue Q was originally conceived as a sketch show for Comedy Central, more oh. like Sesame Street, where they were sort of individual. Had they optioned the material for that purpose? They, or? they had uh, they had interest from Comedy Central and other other TV situations, but nothing ever panned out. And mm-hmm. that's when Jeffrey and Kevin and Robin found it and decided to develop it as a musical. So they were essentially taking meetings for pitches on the show, like what could the show be? Mm-hmm. Because I had some TV experience, I was able to talk about it in a certain way. We ended up using animation and some right. live events um, that I think helped me get the job. But it was also one of those things, I walked into the room and because of all those other experiences, I had that critical mass experience of, oh, I already know all these people. They don't know me well, right. but there was like a an interest. You know, right. Sometimes that happens with a job. Did that, it, that started at the Vineyard Theater? It did, yeah. So. From the time that you sort of first got it, and did it change a lot in rehearsal for the, during that first production? We had done from the because when it was just a TV episode, there was no um, there was no story, there was no through line. It was truly just sort of the skits. unrelated skits, right? Musical right? skits. Yeah, uh, and, and a lot of those songs were in that version. Okay, um, like everyone's a little bit racist. Mm-hmm. And some of if you were gay, some of the more now famous songs, I guess. And so our job was to find a, a through line for the main character so we uh with jeff and the other guys bobby and uh jeff marks created the the story that became the musical we did a couple of readings at mtc and then we landed at the vineyard uh which is where that first production was and actually the vineyard production was very close to what the broadway production was so that like that show took off and really changed sort of the idea of what people could do mm-hmm. on stage it was very daring mm-hmm. um was that uh was there pushback was anyone asking you to kind of tame anything or no and i think and i look back actually we mentioned michael greif and rent jeffrey and kevin produced rent mm-hmm. and they saw in that writer in jonathan larson this incredible voice the singular voice mm-hmm. and i think they sensed that about bobby and jeff too in the comedy and they're and then Jeffrey with Lin-Manuel later on with his shows, that they had a really good sense of the 
the new voices of young artists. And that's, so they were actually encouraging that voice. And therefore, there wasn't much, you know, boundaries or censorship. If anything, we ended up sort of pulling back on some of our own choices because we were young and yeah. thinking we were being bold. But we also realized that the show, I remember at the vineyard, a, a woman came up to me and she was probably mid 50s and she said, You know, I'm still looking for my purpose in life. I just got divorced and I'm trying to figure out what my next mm-hmm. step is. And that was a day when I remember thinking, oh, this this story might have more reach. It's than, universal. And we realized, so we started pulling back to make it more inclusive. And if anything, that was the only time we maybe kind of thought about a broader audience because we wanted to include people in the emotional experience. Right. Just not people coming to 14th Street to right. see this thing. Right. Um, so when that moved to Broadway, mm-hmm. when it transferred, that was your first Broadway it was show. the first musical I directed in New York. Right. Actually. So you are how old when this happens? Uh, I was 32, yeah. So are you treated like this wunderkind in town? <laughs> is suddenly everyone like, because that doesn't happen a lot. It, no, it doesn't. Um, and we were all, and I was, I think I was the oldest of the four. Right. Or Jeff Woody and I were the same age. So <clears throat> the, the other guys were the wunderkinds because they were younger. Okay. But we were all a group kind of, we'd sort of stumbled onto this thing. And um, we were just grateful to be at the table. You mm-hmm. know? We didn't know it would become what it was going to become. But um, it was, it, you know, you only get to have that experience once, as you know. And yeah. so you, you don't know you're having it. When you look back, you go, oh, I, I'm glad I didn't know what I know now because part of it is just the sort of, balls to try something that hasn't been done before right or to be willing to speak up in a way that you don't realize is maybe not the way most people do it so we had you're nominated for a tony nominated for tony it's all happening it's all happening and are you able to like well i guess it's what you're saying like how do you stay awake during these experiences mm-hmm. when it's just so there was also so much momentum mm-hmm. around this. It was like the train had left the station and everyone's talking about it and everyone's, I mean, it was really It was thrilling. huge. Yeah, it was thrilling. I mean, I, I wonder about bringing this up, but I also, my mother died the very first day of Avenue Q rehearsal in a very sudden way. So I look, when you ask about that, that's why I sort of bring it up, is I had this amazing experience of being tethered to this incredible high, mm-hmm. which was also melded with this really sad experience. So I look back at it now, and it's actually it brought me so much joy in a time that was so hard. How bittersweet. Yeah, right? it was bittersweet. Um, but also it added to sort of what you're asking about, which is just like once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. And I really I value it for so many reasons. You have been involved with so many um, culturally iconic productions, both on film and television. Like when you think about Dawson's Creek and One Tree Hill and and, and just the ways in which those shows were so of their time. Um, and then Avenue Q and Shrek and just all of these like, can you do that? Can you make Shrek a musical? Mm-hmm. And then like who you, you know, the Brian Darcy, Jane, like these people that you, and Sutton Foster and people that you really helped um uncover them for the rest of us mm-hmm. and show us all these possibilities. Uh, and then you moved into, you know, Pitch Perfect, the idea that acapella mm-hmm. became as sexy as, like, anything else on film. It's really... Um, did you know with Pitch Perfect, the first one, uh, 
Did that feel like an, a little indie film and what a fun idea? Or were you aware of the possibility of the magnitude of something like this? It was definitely, it was similar to Avenue Q. We knew, I knew that the writer, Kay Cannon, had a really special, funny voice. And it was this little fun pet project that people had. But like Universal wasn't going to fund it. We had to go out other, other places to get Elizabeth money. Banks. And her uh, husband, Max Handelman, produced it. Okay, so can, let us let me back up a little. Um, it's really one of my favorite movies okay. ever, and I'm actually proud to say that. Um, I love it so much. Uh, I believe for for a few years it was like our, our Christmas morning right. ritual <laughs> to watch Everybody it. Knows the choreography. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? How did they, How did you become the director of this thing? Well, because of Avenue Q and the success of that, I did get sent, I, and, I, and I'd always wanted to do a movie, mm-hmm. I did get sent a lot of musical-based projects, also a lot of teen angst projects okay. based on, because of drum, because of Dawson's Creek and right. all the shows, right? Right, what a perfect So Hollywood musicals. could look at those two things yes. and go, okay, that I understand. Right. So it was sort of- Here's your uh, lane, Jason Moore. Yeah, this is it. So a musical that was sort of about, you know, college uh, outsiders- it was really funny on the page, and I, I was like, I know what to do with this. You know, there's a lot I don't know about making movies, but but I know what to do with this. And no one on the production had worked on a musical before, so I also actually seemed like I had <laughs> knowledge in a way that surprised Act as people. if. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Everything yeah. I didn't know about filmmaking, I could at least be authoritative about when it came to rehearsal shoes and dance mirrors. Right. You know? Um, so we, so I, I got that job by by interviewing with Elizabeth and Max, and then eventually with Universal. Was that a long process? It actually happened pretty quickly. Everyone was interested in making that movie, and then Glee happened. Uh huh. So wait, Glee happened after Glee came on air. After I, I right, the, the Pitch Perfect had been based on a book that was right. actually about real college. Yes, movies. my brother-in-law was a Beelzebub. Oh, at Tufts. Okay, so you know. Oh yes, he was in there. Yes. Exactly. Thank so you. We, so Pitch Perfect had been developed long before, and then Glee came out, and so all the studios kind of got, well, Glee's doing it, so right. you can't do it. So we, it then waited around. It was ready to go, waited around for a year, and then also American Idol was happening, and I was saying, you know, this is a time for music. This mm-hmm. is never going to get old. There's enough you know, space in the world for these things. And that's why the studio didn't end up making it, but an independent ended up making it uh, at a level, was that, budget level. So was that an indie budget or was it still a pretty hefty budget? It was about like 17 million. So it was it was indie with uh, with, with, with perks, but with it was also food. a musical, so it, with food. But also it was a musical, so it required extra money. Were you a fan of the High School Musical series of... At that point, I had never seen High School Musical. You're going to have to leave now, Jason. Thank you so much for coming. It was at 34 minutes in that I realized our love was done. Yeah. As you said, complication. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. We're in act two. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, uh, but I loved, I did love Glee because it's hitting all those notes that I loved. And I loved, you know, Bring It On and Mean Girls and all those those movies. And so I felt like, oh, this is kind of in that family. So I want to talk a little bit about casting for Mm -hmm. that movie because it turned out to be so pitch perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not aware until recently uh, that Anna Kendrick, and I'm really mortified to say this out loud, but I'm going to say it because you are responsible for my life (laughs) and I can share anything with you. I hadn't realized that she had been a child actress. Yes. Um, Nominated for a Tony. Yeah. I just, I'm embarrassed to say, but like for some reason, that's the only thing I don't know about (laughs) musical theater. That was the one dark spot. Um, so the Anna of it all and the Rebel and the Skylers and the Annas and, and the Britneys and the Ben Platts and ben all Platt. of the people who were in the original cast. Tell me a little bit about 
how that cast was created. Well, we knew that we were looking for a unique weirdo outsiders who yeah. were funny. And I felt really strongly that everyone actually needed to be able to sing. Mm-hmm. And so th- that instantly uh, sort of put us in a really focused A small group. group. And I knew about Anna. and she had, Unlike me, yeah. you knew. Well, you, did you know about her movie Camp? Did you see that movie about? Yes, now I know everything, okay. but I it just I wasn't thinking. So I knew that she could sing. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, you know, this movie is so kind of wackadoo in some places. We need a great actress. And she had been nominated for Up in the Air. And we went to lunch right after she was not while she, in the period before she was, you know, before the awards had happened. And uh, I was like, this is an incredible actress. And I thought she'd be great to ground the movie. She got the humor. And then the next person we cast was was Rebel. And mm-hmm. there were, the character was always called Fat Amy. And Rebel had been in Bridesmaids, but it wasn't out yet. And all the casting people were like, this is who you should cast. And they were right. Who cast Pitch Perfect? Uh, a guy named uh, Kelly Barden. Uh, Kelly, it's in. His Carrie Barden's yeah, and his name are the Barden Bellas and Pitch Perfect are named after for him. (laughs) He deserves that. Yeah, so he sort of knew some of the people and brought them to your attention. You had ideas, and Mm. and Skyler, when I was doing Les Mis, Skyler had been in the junior version of Les Mis when we closed Les Mis, and he sang Javert at age sixteen. So I knew him. I knew Anna Camp from theater, and then the guy I didn't know was Ben Platt, Uh who came in to audition, and he sang you know, a Michael Buble song kind of blew us all away. And he was going to college. He was like 17 or 18. Yeah. And I was like, let's get, who's this guy? He's fantastic. And then look at Ben Platt. It's incredible. If you listen to my episode with him, my first one, I think I've done a couple, he talks about how originally his agents were like, there's nothing in it for you. (laughs) He was like, okay. Because everyone he knew his age mm-hmm. was, you know, reading mm-hmm. for it. And so it was really one of those moments where he was like, I'm going to really push yeah. to be seen. And he was right. I also think Ben, maybe, and he was young enough, but it's no one's fault, but the agents might not have known how transformative he can mm-hmm. be. He's very versatile and transformative and goes deep. So, you know, they may not have seen how on the page he could play that outsider weirdo part. Exactly. He did it beautifully. He crushed it. He crushed it. Well done, Ben Platt. Mm-hmm. Um He's also the most lovely human. I love him so much. I know. His album drops tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, great. Just by the way, which will not be tomorrow when this airs. So it was yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) For listeners at home. Um, Yeah. I've heard a couple of songs and he can do a lot of things. He can can do all the things. He really can. Um, I saw the Cher show last night. And if I could turn back time... Jason Moore, and really understand how all of this came to be. Um, You know, there's 8 million pictures on the internet of you and your friend Cher. (laughs) Um, So how involved is Cher with the Cher show beyond loving it, obviously, and just being so pleased with how it turned out? She Well, she was always... producer right and she it's her story and there's you know it's not based on a book or a biography or a movie or a documentary it's based on us sitting down and talking to her it's really her oral history is what we're we've documented. so when you say we who's in the room when you guys are documenting her life well rick ellis who uh, wrote an incredibly funny and moving book started out on the project i came later so he had done a draft by having spent a couple weeks out at shares malibu you know, Were they home. friends or had a, he pitched the idea to a producer, a producer to him? Like, how does it... No, a producer named Floaty Suarez, mm-hmm. fantastic guy, had gotten the uh, rights to her uh, story and all the songs and brought it to Jeffrey Seller, again, who 
Rent Avenue Q, yeah. Hamilton. And Jeffrey, since we, yeah, since we had worked together, he said, you know, are, are you a sheriff fan? I said, well, yes, duh. And uh, he said, well, take a look at this. And I really, it, it, it had so many songs that I didn't realize were all her that I was like, oh, this would be really thrilling to put on stage. And at that point, was there any kind of, when he says take a look at this, is it was it a proposal or just an no, idea? No, it was, a, it was or... a full script. Rick had spent time with Cher, had gotten sort of all the details. He had all the catalogs of songs put down, and he had the concept that you saw last night, which is okay. let's have three women play Cher. They're on stage. The three tall time. women version. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's our inspiration. That was his Rick's inspiration. But that they are all together all the time, and that you know them debating decisions that they make is part of how you get inside a character's mind. And musicals are about the externalization of the internal mm-hmm. thoughts. So it just, I think it was really smart, uh, smart convention. I know. It is that. like sideshow meets three yeah, tall. It's it sort really of this, <laughs> this all of this, these kind of um, mm-hmm. iconic sister, mm-hmm. uh, King Lear's daughters, like yeah. all of it. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to know how, you know, I, I think of performances by actors who you would never imagine would transform. I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote. I mean, I just really think of people who you see in real life, and there was just no way that you could imagine this transformation. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie Block is channeling a share. As a friend of mine said, Stephanie Block does share better than share at this point. Share <laughs> sure might have said that. To really? <laughs> I mean, it really is the most extraordinary thing. And if yeah. you have seen her in Falsettos and Edwin Drood and Wicked and all these other things, you'd be hard pressed to imagine uh, that who she is as a performer would be such a perfect fit for this unbelievably iconic role. Yeah, I mean she on all those roles that you mentioned she does she goes so deep and that's why we And love they're her. so different. And they're so different and she does she knows how to immerse herself but she had been through this one Stephanie is a star so mm-hmm. it's perfect. That's why I keep reminding her you're playing a character called Star, you're a star. You know, wherever she felt like, "Oh wow, this is going to be a challenge." I was like, "You're actually already there." And she she far exceeded even my expectations. But she had been through this very particular challenge before having played um a real person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in uh, when she played Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. So, so she actually knew more than I did that getting the mannerisms and the voice was really important for people to invest in her as the character. So that, so that if originally you just had this idea of like, we are going to do our version of Cher, she was like, actually, no, it has to really seem like Cher. Especially because she was playing the oldest share which meant that it was the share that most of us have come to Mm -hmm. know so we had a little bit more flexibility in like the youngest share and what does she sound like when she was 12 no one really knows no but that wig is so pitch perfect that it's yeah the little side um but stephanie had a sense that because she's the sort of center the root that 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 she needed to have that and then also they all can embody different qualities of share which is sort of how it becomes a theatrical conceit rather than an imitation so did you offer that part to stephanie or did yeah so so everyone just jumped in with this sense, like, we'll make it work. It's not like you had workshopped it together. No, actually, I because I knew how smart Stephanie was, mm-hmm. how deep she could go. And so many things on stage already were. She sort of looks like Cher. She yeah. has a voice like Cher. She has the powerhouse. She's funny, which yeah. is kind of key. She's also very vulnerable. All the things, and very authentic. Yeah. I think that's one of the and a mother. And a mom. A, a real mom. Yeah, so, so she could understand that part of Cher's life, too. Yeah. So she already had... on. And, you know, when you start to make those lists of people who have all those qualities, the lists can be often short in terms of people you might already know. I think right. it's always 
people we don't know yet, and that's the exciting part. But we went while she when she was she had been nominated for falsettos. We went to dinner and the mayhem of all of that, and that was really the like, can we do this together? And I just knowing hearing her talk, I was like, she's going to be fantastic. And did she say yes right away, or was she intimidated? She she said she had because she had had a difficult experience doing this. I think before she had all the she asked all the right questions mm-hmm. about wanting to make sure it worked for her this time and you know you, when you embark on a project you never really know what that journey is going to be she, right. she says now if i had known that i would have had to start the show in the turn back time outfit i might not have ever done it <laughs> but that was something we added after chicago but i think she was interested she was interested in the message uh, she was interested in the joy and and the love of the, the the story. So once we started doing rewrites and she was a part of it, yeah, she came aboard pretty quickly. But 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 rightly so. There was a a lot of is this right for me questions that she was asking, which any actor should ask. So was Cher a part of the process once rehearsals began? Well, once we had a script, we always would go out to read the script to Cher. So that can we you could... just talk a little bit about what that is? <laughs> it's, going uh... out to shares to read through the script it it is super surreal i had to kind of get over it because i was like if i'm gonna read i gotta get to work yeah if i'm gonna read sunny in front of share like that's one of all i'm gonna as i said earlier i was so bad that it was like it was so clear that that was <laughs> right what it was supposed to be right but um she was she was protected but generous you know she wanted she she wanted to help us and she wanted to help us get the stories but it was hard for her to relive those things. And, the things that were not easy. Yeah, the things that were not easy. In fact, uh, the very first time, you know, we read through just Rick and I and a couple other actresses, you know, we got to some difficult parts and we had to skip through them because she didn't know us either at that time. But so she was like, don't, I don't, I can't do this right now? Or you sense that it wasn't the right no, time? No, she actually said, she, she's very communicative in a helpful way, like, let's skip through the, let's skip through this part, let's get to this part. Once she became more comfortable, that's also when the best material came from her, right? Mm. The true layers of what was going on with the relationships and why her relationship might have not have you know, lasted and what her relationships were like to her kids and to herself, because that's really what that show is about, is the way that her younger self communicates with her older self. So by by the time she was coming to see readings and workshops, she felt comfortable to really, you know, give us feedback that was helpful. Also, she's like, it's her story, and she doesn't necessarily know a ton about stage musicals, but she's an entertainer. Mm-hmm. So she would get, she would see the show in front of an audience and instantly hear entertainment instincts kicked in also so she was incredible kind of director's eye as well like take a pause here land this joke here you know cut this dress a little lower like she she has all of those ways of being an entertainer that were very helpful for the show too so the costumes the bob mackie costumes which are mind-blowing aren't they he's a he's a genius so are any of those originals that have been redone? We So there are lots of kind of iconic designs that he recreated. And then there are lots of designs in our show that are based on iconic designs and have been modified for us. Like taking the, the sort of costumes at the end or versions of the Mongolian queen that he did for Cher mixed with the, a mirror dress that he'd done in the 70s. Like he kind of did mashups of things he had made. And then he created all new things as well. And I think one or two Things in the show might be things where he was like, I designed this, I always loved it, Cher didn't want to wear it, and now she's going to wear it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What a kind of once-in-a-lifetime experience. That really was. When I went out to visit Bob's studio in Los Angeles, he has a Cher room. 
and I didn't realize it was the Sheraton. Is there like a Carol Burnett room? And yes. like, yes. There's, there's, there's a Carol... So is it a museum or his it's, workshop? No, it's his workshop, but you can see everything's kind of in like a plastic bin and it's labeled on the side, but then you can see through it. You can see like the green curtains or whatever it is, what famous thing is there. So we were in the share room and, and I, I did I did burst into gay tears uh, because... They were pink. They were, they, they were pink. <laughs> they were shiny. Um, but because, again, that sense of history... Uh, and the sense of feeling so, you know, honored to be uh, be witness to a little part of it. When you think about sort of the the different kinds of things you've directed, you know, sisters is Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, mm-hmm. right? So, how do they work? How what is that like to watch them? You know, on that movie. I felt like I was on the ride as opposed to driving the ride mm-hmm. because they, they're they all so – one, they all know each other well, Maya Rudolph, Tina, and Amy, and all of the other comedians that we had gathered. And they all knew improv is such a generous um, form, mm-hmm. right? So they knew how to serve the ball back to each other and create situations that were – amenable so I was often not having to create that environment yeah. I was mostly just having to kind of harness and make sure that I documented it yeah so it was really nice it was also the first time that I'd worked with a bunch of people my own age it's mm-hmm. usually been uh, kids younger than me so that was it was really wonderful I think it was probably peers. the first time where I really relaxed and was like oh I don't have to worry about every little detail because I'm you know a director anxiety control freak person of course you do but I was like oh I don't actually have to because there are people so much smarter than me and that was a good turning point I really learned I, I was able to trust Tina and Amy so much on all was the, the script just like a template did they ever do it as written or we always did it as written the woman who wrote it a woman named Paula Pell had written for SNL and Paula was on on uh, set every day right next to me so we did it as written, but then Paula would write jokes, and she put them on Post-it notes, and she put them on the monitor, and I could run the Post-it notes out to one of the actors or yell it out from there. So we always did it as scripted, but the writer was sitting next to me, so we were always doing versions that she had rewritten, okay. and then we did improv versions. So we always did at least six takes, right. two of the original, two of Paula's onset jokes, and two of improv. So who had, who did you meet with? Did you meet with Tina? Like, is that the person? Did she produce it also? Tina produced it, and she and Paula had been long friends uh, from the SNL days, and um, Tina was producing it. She wanted to star in it. She wanted to play a new, a different kind of character, not the Liz Lemon character right. that she had been playing, which is how we ended up switching sort of what people might have expected. Totally. So I met with Paula originally, and Universal, who distributed Pitch Perfect, was making Sisters. And then I got to sit down with Tina, uh, which was like one of those, that was maybe one of my heady. most heady, nervous meetings, because I... She's because so you smart. love her because I love her. She's so smart. <laughs> She's so funny. I was like worried if it was going to be funny, which means you're never going to be funny. Yeah, try and worry about yeah. That. But she made wait. You fun. were worried about being funny in your meeting with her. Yes, <laughs> which is like the worst way to go and to try and be witty at all. So I think I just decided not to be. Right, which made me look funny. Right. Uh. So, but it was it was fantastic. She's a uh, she she cre- she was a head writer on SNL. She creates television. So she is both an actress, but a creator and a right. driver and a producer and a, and a, and a mama. Yeah. She knows how to also create environments so people can create. So that I learned a lot from her. Still do. That's incredible. Um, so superhero, just another little known fact. When I was pregnant with the baby, uh, Jason Moore Famusa, <laughs> <laughs> I decided, JMF, J- JMF um, 
I thought, you know, this is my last chance to take piano lessons uh-huh. uh, because I'm about to have JMF. Yeah. Um, and somehow through a friend, uh, it was suggested that there was this really talented guy who might have time for one more uh, student in Tom Kitt. No, I'm not, <laughs> not kidding. So Tom Kitt came over once a week wow. to my apartment in Chelsea. He mentioned like, oh, I'm working with Amanda Green yeah. on something. And he started mentioning all these people I knew really well that he was also creating. I was like, Nick Horn read that book. Yeah. Um, so I, I am probably the last day job yeah. that Tom Kitt had before he became one of the most famous Tom Kitts on the planet. Yeah, prize winner, yeah. Yeah. Um, who, and I bring Tom Kitt up because he is the uh, composer mm-hmm. for this musical superhero with Kate Baldwin and Bryce Pinkham. Pinkham. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the third actor... Uh, is Kyle MacArthur, who's a young, uh, incredible find which people are going to discover so tomorrow everyone will think it funny that i wasn't sure who he was because he's basically going to be ben platt on thursday there you have it so for him yeah he's got all those skills too it's very special so tell me about superhero well i admit tom kitt he was um, your piano teacher no no but but long ago (laughs) i used one of his songs from the tom kitt band on one of my episodes of dawson's creek so that's how I met him, sort of going to his rock shows when he had that band. And I fell in love with the Next to Normal, and we had become friends. He did some of the arrangements for Pitch Perfect. Uh, and Next to Normal is one of the most gorgeous shows It, it really is. History. I think I, yeah. I, I, he cried through that several times, and, and it had a big, profound impact on me emotionally. And he said, and we'd been wanting to do something together for a while, he said, I've been working on this project with John Logan, who's an incredible writer, wrote a play called Red, many movies. Oh, he wrote red. Um, yeah, yeah. That, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and he said it. You know, it's about it's about grieving and loss, and it's about superheroes, and it's. I think it's special. So I looked at it, and it, it really is. It's very much in the vein of next to normal. It's a family story. It's emotional, but it has this really uh, interesting twist, which is the kid who's lost his father thinks that the man that has moved in next door is a superhero, and becomes convinced that. And it's about the mystery of solving if whether he is or isn't. Wow. I can't wait. Well, I really can't wait to see the next one million things that you do. And you bring so much humor and love and compassion to all of the projects that you do. Jason Moore, I've waited a really long time to say thank you. Um, Thank you for your work. Thank you for bringing so much love into my life. And... um, Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I love you and your family, and I'm so happy to, to see you again. Amazing. See you soon. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. Thank you so much for listening. Do you know there are over 120 episodes of Little Known Facts with Alana Levine at this point? So if you love this one, but you're a new listener, go back to the beginning and catch up. I promise you every episode will shed a light on an artist that inspires you in a whole new way. It is such a pleasure to make this podcast for you, and I hope if you love listening as much as I love making it, that you'll head over to my website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. There's a donation page, and truly, 
Any donation, large or small, makes such a huge impact on my being able to make over a hundred more episodes for you guys. So I really, really appreciate it. I record this podcast at the Hangar Studios in New York City. If you ever are interested in making your own podcast or any kind of recording, go to thehangerstudios.com and get more information on how they make the magic happen. Thanks for listening.